Oh, hello. Hi. It's Monday afternoon, and it's been a few days, so let's do another podcast. I'm Ann Althaus, your podcaster, your blogger, and this is a podcast based on a blog. So if you're reading the blog, a lot of this will sound familiar. I'm not going to read everything that's on the blog, and I'm going to say some things that are not on the blog. So I'm going to connect things up in a way. I have a little road map here. Try to follow it. But uh, even though there are four days, today was kind of the best of the last four days. I got to say, some days things just, there's a way things arise. It's uh, who knows why, but things fit together in a nice way today. So I'm going to start on my road map with the first post of today, which was about Dolly Parton. There was an article in the New York Times called Dolly Parton Likes to Read by the Fire in Her Pajamas. Dolly Parton Likes to Read by the Fire in Her Pajamas. Uh, the wording of that headline really forced me to make a Groucho Marx joke based on the famous Groucho Marx joke. One morning I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he got in my pajamas, I don't know. Okay, so Dolly Parton likes to read by the fire in her pajamas. I have to say, how the fire got in her pajamas, I don't know. So uh, anyway, what was interesting here was, um, well, first of all, she was asked um, to organize a literary dinner party. You know, this is one of these hypothetical uh, imagination questions. You can have a dinner party and invite three writers. This was obviously all about books. Who would you invite? And I thought it was amusing that uh, she didn't really even seem like she was doing the usual thing, which is to try to set up a great dinner conversation. You know, who you can have anyone at your dinner. They don't even need to be still alive. Uh, who would they be? And so she said, first would be James Patterson, because since we're both in entertainment, we could write it off as a business expense. Ha! She has this great superpower, and she's thinking about paying for the dinner and writing it off as a tax expense. Kind of, yeah, We're going to go on to the question of what Dolly Parton's politics are, but I thought uh, I got a whiff of the conservative about that. It seems sort of anti-taxation. I mean, if you're really on the left, don't you just willingly pay your taxes? Don't you think that that's the price of uh, living in a society, that you pay what the government deems is what you owe? Just pay it. Just uh, gratefully pay it because we're all in this together. No, she wants to go out of her way to make this dinner, which is obviously for her, her personal pleasure and enrichment. She wants to write it off as a business expense, so she's inviting James Patterson, who's a bestseller type writer. Uh, I guess if you're, if you're in entertainment, you can write it off as a business expense, but if you're writing books, you can't but that's your business. I guess she needs to have him be in her business if she's with people who are in a different business. Even though she wrote a book, she wrote a book about herself. That is, she's kind of trying to sell that here. Anyway, her first guest was James Patterson, so she blew that one off. Second, she invited Fanny Flagg because she's a friend. So she already knows this person. She can bring back the greatest writers of all time, the people you'd most like to ask a few questions and she's blowing the second one off, too, on someone she already knows and could have dinner with any old time. Okay, now for third, and she 
adds a fourth one as well, even though she's only supposed to have uh, four, three. Uh, third, she invites, finally actually using the superpower, she invites Maya Angelou because she would definitely have wonderful stories and spoke and wrote so poetically. Now, when you're having a dinner with a group of people, do you really picture someone who speaks in this slow, elevated, poetic way? Is that going to be good over dinner? I don't know. Is everyone going to sit there and wait while Maya Angelou gets these stories out in her elaborate, elevated, slow-talking way of speaking? Or who knows what Maya Angelou was like at dinner. Maybe she spoke one way publicly and it was, uh, you know, what would she be like after a glass of wine or two and so on? That might be different, but that this is, uh, and then the third one, the fourth one is just um, Charles Dickens, but she says, I'd ask Charles Dickens to join us for the street cred. So she's like, I have to ask one big writer, greatest writer of all time. So she just, just brings in Charles Dickens. And I think she's saying that because she associates him with Christmas and it's getting close to Christmas. Anyway, um, the um, I, I was trying to figure out whether she was conservative because of that tax business. And, um, and I thought that um, th the other thing in the piece that struck me as conservative was that she twice expressed her love of the book, The Little Engine That Could. That's the book she wants all kids to read. And she has a charity that's involved with uh, distributing children's books. And she really thinks it's important that children read the little engine that could. And I just can't imagine a left-leaning person saying that because that seems to get back to just the very conservative uh, position that uh, everybody ought to fend for themselves and uh, take whatever it is they have, whether they're big or small, or they got, uh, they got a lot of gifts or they got less to just keep trying and work as hard as you can, and then you can succeed. Uh, that's a If that's the important message you want to get to kids, and I'm not saying it's not a good message for kids, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I actually think it is a deficient method message to give to kids. For example, I think that if you're going to go up a hill or, or you're going to do any kind of a task, you should have appropriate tools. And if you're underpowered, it's quite dangerous and foolish. And so just the idea of, well, I will use this inadequate tool, but I'll try really hard. I don't think that's right. I think you can cause damage. And I think doing something when you don't have the right vehicle and you're going to start driving your, your, your small car in, through, the, through the mud off, uh, off the road? No, it, it's either designed for that or not. It, it's not, well, I'm just really going to mean it when I take off into the mud and quicksand and just, uh, just gut it out. I don't think that is such a great message uh, for children. And I've known some children that have gotten hurt. Some children even get killed because they think, well, I can get in there. I can do that. Maybe you can't. Maybe you're going to hurt yourself. But see, so uh, in saying that, you can tell that I have a somewhat more left-wing bent even though I do think people ought to be individualistic and work for themselves and feel motivated, and that that is a good message for, in general for kids to get. Anyway, I went looking to see what uh, Dolly Parton's politics were, 
And I found this in the Independent. Dolly Parton's politics hide in plain sight, whether she admits it or not. There is not much room for ambiguity in our times, as some Hollywood stars have found out. Yet Parton's philanthropy, which includes her funding of a COVID-19 vaccine, means she gets a free pass. But it's so easy to read between the lines. Now, I'd already read between the lines. I decided that any devoted promoter of the little, red, the little engine that could must be conservative or libertarian. But let's read this in The Independent. I don't do politics, she told the acclaimed biographical podcast Dolly Parton's America in 2019. I have too many fans on both sides of the fence. Of course, I have my opinion, but I learned years ago to keep my mouth shut about things. Parton is a hodgepodge of left-wing and right-wing signifiers, a red state icon who refused to critique Donald Trump and who happens to express love and adoration for every gender, sexuality, and color imaginable. Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, her new Netflix film, is thick with God-fearing spirituality and occasionally creepy nostalgia for small-town America, but it is also hyper-queer in execution. Think it's a wonderful life if directed by Divine. And I said, yes, remember the time Jennifer Aniston asked her, is it true that you once said that it's a good thing you were born a girl? Otherwise, you would have been a drag queen? And she said, I'm so over-exaggerated. And I have so many fans, the gay community and the drag queens. I've always had these drag queens dressed like me. And I even lost a Dolly Parton lookalike contest. But that's still show business and personal warmth and empathy, all that stuff about uh, gender and uh, gay people and uh, drag queens and so forth. It's not really politics. I mean, people politicize that, but you could be completely conservative or libertarian and still be pro-gay and pro all of the gender cluster of things. But back to the independent. In the podcast, Dolly Parton's America, Host Jad Abumrad repeatedly questioned Parton's limp stances on feminism and right-wing boogeymen. He recalled her visible discomfort at a joke made at Trump's expense at the 2017 Emmys, in which her 9-to-5 co-stars Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin repurposed a line from the film to condemn the then-president. Parton, on stage with the pair, pointedly stayed quiet, then made a quip about her boobs. Openly signaling, uh, open signaling of your values and using an, your A-list privilege for political good has become a fundamental part of modern celebrity branding. Parton has yet to submit. Somebody flagged that in the comments. Parton has yet to submit. It means many of her modern interviews are slightly awkward, Parton talking around matters of importance and sticking to an admittedly anodyne script of wishing everyone well and calling for unity. She's donated millions to AIDS research and was an early advocate for gay marriage and trans rights and has also used her incredible wealth to give back. In August, Parton took told Billboard magazine that she supported Black Lives Matter. Do we think our little white asses are the only ones that matter? She asked. 
In 2018, she removed the use of the word Dixie from an attraction at Dollywood, citing its Confederate origins. As soon as you realize something is a problem, you fix it, Parton explained. Don't be a dumbass. That's where my heart is. I would never dream of hurting anybody on purpose. Her politics are based on what is just or right, rooted in compassion, the sharing of wealth, and helping wherever help is needed. And I said, yes, that's charity. If that's political, it's right wing. Now, it might be just not political at all, but um, if you were left wing, you would support government doing these things with taxation money, tax money, and then the government uh, doles it out. But when you're spending your own money, you're doing charity. That's uh, And if you think that that's the way to get things done through charity, through individual um, gestures of empathy, that's the, that's the right-wing position. So um, I also put in a little uh, clip of Lily and Jane and Dolly at the Emmys. And you can see she holds back, lets them say their thing. And the way she doesn't speak is eloquent. You know, uh, it gets my blog tag, unsaid things. There's a way of not speaking. Oh, I forgot to put the tag unsaid thang- things on there. I used unsaid things somewhere else today. That should be in my roadmap. I need to get that linked up. So, but what I want to link this to is, um, uh, let's see, I have to go to, he was entranced. He, well, oh, here it is. He was entranced by fire. Now I'm reading from a New York Post article titled Zappos founder Tony I'm, I'm not sure I can say his name right. It's H-S-I-E-H. Uh, I'm going to say, say, and I'm sure that's wrong, but I don't have a better guess, and I ought to have looked it up. Well, let me look it up. Okay, well, what I found is that it's usually pronounced in English as Shay, but that's not exactly right. That wouldn't really be what it would sound like in Chinese, but... I consulted several sources, and they pretty much said to say Shay. So Zappos founder Tony Shay spent last hours planning to enter rehab. Uh, and that makes it sound like he almost got to rehab and almost saved his life. He died in a fire uh, that apparently he himself caused, Um and he also caused his own inability to be pulled out of that fire, it seems, I think, from what I've read. But I think when you read about him, and this is something I'm going to quote, you can, um, it, it, assuming this is correctly, factually stated in the New York Post, you can see that he's someone with fairly serious mental distortions. Quote, he was entranced by fire with a real estate agent recalling seeing an estimated 1,000 candles in Shea's Park City, Utah home. He explained to me that the candles were a symbol of what life was like in simpler time. The quirky entrepreneur also liked to use a heater in his girlfriend's shed to decrease the oxygen level, sources told the media outlet. Shea also inhaled nitrous oxide or laughing gas, a.k.a. whippets, 
to try to decrease his oxygen use. By, but playing with his oxygen intake was only one part of Shea's manipulation of his body. Shea would go on a 26-day alphabet diet in which he would only eat foods starting with a single letter each day, such as A, the first 24 hours, B, the second, and so on, nearly fasting by the letter Z. He got down to 100 pounds at one point. Shea would also see how long he could go without urinating. A pal told the journal that Shea was like the giving tree, the selfless character in the Shel Silverstein kitty classic that gives so much of itself that it is left with nothing. Okay, so now you see why I started the roadmap here. Now we've got a second children's book under discussion. We were just talking about the little engine that could. And now here's the giving tree. The, and I said, um, the giving tree... So and a question I, I want to address first is, is it true that Shay was like the giving tree? The selfless character that gives so much of it, it gives one part of itself after another until there's nothing left but a stump? That's the story. Uh, was the story supposed to be, wow, what a wonderful person the giving tree was, so giving. Um, or is there is it a story about the relationship between the boy and the tree? Um, people argue about this. Some people love the giving tree, not just the book, but the character, the giving tree. And the boy receiving the all that the tree had to give, well, he's a boy. So uh, that's what children do. He absorbed absorbed the gifts that were given. And I said, uh, the giving tree was giving, sacrificing to provide the boy with benefits. Shea's sacrifices did not give anyone else anything, but merely paired away from the person making the sacrifices. Shea not urinating, or not using oxygen, or not eating foods that begin with more than the same, the one letter, the letter of the day, it's like a Sesame Street diet. Uh, what, what was he doing this for? He was only restricting himself. He wasn't giving it to anyone. He was testing himself or doing something that seemed important. Uh, that's hard to see why it was important. It wasn't that he was giving of the thing that somebody else needed. He was just restricting himself. Why was he doing it? He was looking for a simpler life, but uh, not breathing, not urinating. You have to imagine, it, 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 it's not The Giving Tree. Uh, I'm imagining an alternative children's book called The Giving Up Tree. And even in The Giving Tree, we question whether the tree, that is the person represented by the tree, should have given everything. Shouldn't the boy at some point have learned about giving, about, have learned about giving from the tree and become a giver himself? Shouldn't he have given back? I think if you look up what Shel Silverstein thought of the story that he wrote, it was that um, it's a story about a giver and a taker, the giving tree. It's not the giving tree and the taking boy. That's just implicit. Uh, but uh, what about the giving up tree that I'm imagining as what you would have to have to have a character like uh, Tony Shea? He'd just give up things. But the giving up tree is not going to become a children's classic. Decreasing oxygen intake, resisting peeing, 
eating quince and quinoa on the 17th day of a highly conceptual diet. Well, I admit that alphabet books are popular with children. Maybe there already is a book that begins on the first day, X ate applesauce and angel hair pasta, and ends with, on the 27th day, he was dead. And I thought of that line, and I knew it was from something. I knew it was uh, some, some, something that I read. And on the fifth day, he was dead. And I remembered, I remembered, it was uh, from this book, Stroll Peter, that I was given when I was a child. And there's a story in that, there's a poem in it, the story of Augustus, who would not have any soup. Augustus was a chubby lad, fat, ruddy cheeks Augustus had. And everybody saw with joy the plump and hearty, healthy boy. He ate and drank as he was told and never let his soup get cold. But one day, one cold winter's day, he screamed out, take the soup away. Oh, take the nasty soup away. I won't have any soup today. Next day, now look, the picture shows how lank and lean Augustus grows. Yet though he feels so weak and ill, the naughty fellow cries out still. Not any soup for me, I say. Oh, take the nasty soup away. I won't have any soup today. The third day comes. Oh, what a sin to make himself so pale and thin. Yet when the soup is put on table, he screams as loud as he is able. Not any soup for me, I say. Oh, take the nasty soup away. I won't have any soup today. Look at him. Now the fourth day's come. He scarcely weighs a sugar plum. He's like a little bit of thread. And on the fifth day, he was dead. <laughs> Go to the Struel Peter link and see the illustrations of the rapid weight loss that befalls anorexic Augustus. And then uh, as long as we're talking about things in Struel Peter that are reminiscent of Tony Shea, there's also the dreadful story of Harriet and the matches. I'll just read one snippet from it. But Harriet would not take advice. She lit a match. It was so nice. It crackled so. It burned so clear, exactly like the picture here. She jumped for joy and ran about and was too pleased to put it out. Of course, she catches fire, completely burns. And uh, this it's an interesting story because she has two kitty cats there telling her the advice not to play with matches. And in the end, as she's burned, after she's burned, she's just a little pile of ashes and her little shoes are there. And the two cats are next to the pile of ashes and they're crying and the tears make a little pool. And I, I thought that was interesting because of course, uh, for all the nastiness, they did uh, lighten the image of cats. So everything is darker than in real life? No, not actually, no, no. The cats were much kinder and more empathetic than cats in real life. I, I think cats in real life would, uh, would barely notice that the girl had burned. They would probably leave and not hang around and try to give her good advice. When, when would a cat give you advice? It doesn't happen. But uh, there are many, uh, many interesting, unrealistic things in that book. It's a powerfully memorable book. It was written in 1835 in German by a psychiatrist. So 
he was uh, taken advantage of some of his knowledge of patients with various uh, troubles. But he was telling them that uh, terrible things would happen to them. There's one about a boy who sucks his thumb and is told that if he sucks his thumb, the scissor man will come and cut off his thumbs. And uh, he sucks his thumb anyway, and damned if the scissor man doesn't come leaping into the room with these huge scissors and cut off the boy's thumb. It's uh, everything's, I told you so. There are rules. If you don't follow them, there will be consequences. Would you give that book to your sweet little child? Is it more or less dangerous than the giving tree? I haven't read all the comments, but I hope people are getting some depth on the question of whether Stroll Peter is more or less dangerous than the giving tree. Obviously, just by asking the question, I'm nudging you to say the really dangerous book is the giving tree. And I wonder what books influenced Tony Shea. He himself wrote a book. It's called Delivering Happiness. It was a bestseller in its time about 10 years ago. Who, who will read it now? Here's a one-star review at Amazon written before Shea's untimely death. Quote, for full transparency, I only read the first third of the book before I took it to goodwill. I just couldn't take it anymore. It's written at a very low educational level, which goes to show you don't really need brains to be rich or even be a billionaire. What you really, really must have is luck and a lot of it. And I said, uh, but even when you have a lot of luck, you can run out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an unlucky combination to be rich and mentally ill. Or maybe there's a way in which being very rich can make you mentally ill. You don't have people telling you what you can't do. You can easily get the things you feel a craving for. And if uh, the things you've gotten uh, lead to other desires and cause you to exclude from your life people who give you advice about what's going to happen to you, how you're going to catch on fire, um, how you're going to starve to death, whatever things happen, uh, you can exclude them from your life. And you can imperiously think, uh, think that they, they don't belong there at all. Um, I was looking at some uh, quotes, let's see, quotes on luck at Goodreads. You ever, you ever go to Goodreads and get the, qu the quotes that have been uh, up, voted on by different people? on different subjects. If you go to Goodreads, you can find the most upvoted quote on the subject of, in this case, the one I looked up, luck. And uh, I like this quote, the one that is uh, most, most liked in the category luck. It's from Cormac McCarthy in No Country for Old Men. You never know what worse luck your bad luck has saved you from. I think that's uh, that's true. That's true. Uh, that, you might think you have bad luck, but you don't know what the other thing might have been. You might be lucky that you got that and not something worse. I think there's a Mark Twain quote that's a little, where did I see that? That might be a little bit similar to that. Uh, I'm not going to find it, but uh, let's see. The Dalai Lama said, this is a little similar. Um, remember that sometimes not getting what you want is a wonderful stroke of luck. I think Cormac McCarthy said the same thing more eloquently, although I don't think the Dalai Lama's uh, uh, 
first language is English, so I don't know how he said it in his home language. You, I like uh, Carmen McCarthy's better. You never know what worse luck your bad luck has saved you from. Well, when you actually get killed, uh, that's very bad luck. It's possible some horrible life lay ahead that you didn't get to. Um, I see uh, one of the upvoted luck quotes is from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Shallow men believe in luck or in circumstance. Strong men believe in cause and effect. Reminds me a little of the little engine that could. The little engine that could wasn't hoping to get lucky. The little engine that could worked hard and believed in his cause and put a lot of effort into it. But cause and effect, you know. Cause and effect, it might not be that the cause that is your desire to achieve something and your hard work will have the effect of getting you what you want. But uh, I like this Thomas Jefferson quote, too. It's a little bit uh, interesting coming from a slave owner. I'm a greater believer in luck, and I find the harder I work, the more I have of it. Now, mm. does a slave get lucky by working harder? Well, the train went up the hill more successfully by working hard. You could say that was lucky, but it was really hard work. But uh, not everyone can get where they want through hard work. And uh, one of my favorite things about blogging is when two things go together like that, that I'm blogging about Dolly Parton, and it turns out to be about a children's book. And then I go on to this subject of Tony Shea, and that ends up just having almost randomly in that story a reference to the giving tree. And so... That gives another another children's book. And um, I was reading about that, and I thought, um, oh, and so, so reading about the giving tree, I was amazed and just delighted to find that Shel Silverstein, the author of The Giving Tree, had written a version of The Little Engine That Could. And it's called The Little Blue Engine. And... I put up a, an embedded recording on the blog of Shel Silverstein himself reading with great elan his own poem, the, uh, the Little Blue Engine. And his engine goes through the same, I think I can chant that works so well to convince kids that they can achieve if they work hard and believe in themselves. You know, the right wing ideology, the optimism. But Sh Silverstein has a darker take uh, the fourth stanza inflicts reality. So I'm just going to read you the fourth stanza of Shel Silverstein's poem, but I also link to a, a complete, uh, complete version of it. This is the fourth stanza. Quote, he was almost there when crash, smash, bash, he slid down and mashed into engine hash on the rocks below which goes to show if the track is tough and the hill is rough, thinking you can just ain't enough. Another thing I found when I went to the 
Wikipedia article on the little engine that could is an Eminem song called Little Engine. And it uses, uh, it's a really interesting song, although it's incredibly dark. I think it's about murdering a woman. It just amazes me that someone could go on for so many years expressing such dark, violent thoughts and be as uh, brilliantly talented as he is. It's just, uh, it's hard to get your mind around, really. But anyway, I, I, link to the lyrics. You can read the whole thing or you can listen to the song. I have it embedded on the blog, but the key line is, I think I can. I think I can. I know I can. Psycho I am. And uh, apparently he is. Uh, so that, that's uh, disturbing, but it's interesting. Maybe many, many people have been influenced by being given that book that every, lots of adults seem to think children should get and be influenced by the little engine that could. But, you know, you can't control what the reader thinks. You could read that book and think, yeah, I'm just going to work really hard and try hard all my life and try to achieve. And that's what they do. But uh, maybe there are other ways, you know, you might say, well, this is a this is a bad story. You shouldn't go up a steep hill with an inadequate engine. That's a foolish lesson, and I'm going to get the right tools before I try big jobs. Well, I was reading, um, I don't know what, Facebook, something like that, the other day, and I was served up an ad for a book called Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America by Ijeoma Oluo. And uh, it has a nice, uh, interesting cover, maybe an offensive cover, but it just shows a sort of a, from the neck down, man in a suit. And then where the head should be, in place of the head, there's a white balloon, as if uh, the man is just an empty head, an airhead, an empty, an empty suit, and no head, uh, but a balloon. And of course, it's white because he's a white male. And the book is called Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of America. And I was reading this, uh, I decided to go read some reviews of it, and I found um, in the New York Times a review called In America is Power in the Hands of Too Many Mediocre Men. And uh, I, here's, a, here's a paragraph that I read. Beginning with William Buffalo Bill Cody, the 19th century showman whose slaughter of American buffaloes was a mere prelude for hunting and killing indigenous people, Oluo historicizes the creation of a violent and profane American white masculinity. Rooted in muscular Christianity, this conception of manliness, she ably demonstrates, also gave us American football, a sport so violent in its early iterations that dozens of the exclusively white men who played it were killed. And that got me completely distracted into reading about Buffalo Bill Cody. And I found, a, put up on the blog, a clip of him in 1908 riding, riding a horse, riding on horseback. It's, it's some early film. He was born in, um, let me see, he was born in 1846 and died in 1917, 1846. So it's interesting to have film of him, film of him riding a horse. So I was reading about him. Here's something he said to, about his wife. I often feel sorry for her. She is a strange woman, but I don't mind her. Remember, she is my wife, and let it go at that. 
If she gets cranky, just laugh at it. She can't help it. He tried to divorce her after almost 40 years of marriage. He said that when he was away and she was at their ranch in North Platte, Nebraska, she would feed the men too much and talk violently about Cody and his alleged sweethearts and that she was seen putting something in his coffee. He accused her of trying to poison him on multiple occasions. And he said that to deal with her, he needed to get drunk and stay drunk. Anyway, the case went to trial, and um, the judge and also the public sided with the wife, as you might imagine, because he was known to have all of these affairs with women. He was, he was in showbiz. He was out there doing the shows, and his wife was back on the farm. Where uh, What was she doing wrong? She fed the men too much and talked violently about him and his alleged sweetheart. She was mad at him for having affairs. <laughs> but uh, that made her intolerable. But he was out, uh, out and about and uh, doing uh, a kind of classic uh, showman sort of a thing. I have a nice picture of them. Pretty amazing. So that's how I got back into history. I like uh, noticing the little doors and going through them, going back into the past and seeing what the internet is capable of giving me. And this picture of him and his wife, uh, they're an odd couple. And uh, the video of him riding a horse, I thought that was great. Anyway, um, I said the book review, the review of uh, Mediocre, had a nice picture of Oluo with the caption, White manhood is on a suicide mission, Ijeoma Oluo writes. It is our job, she argues, to pull these men in the country they're so ready to take with them back from the precipice. I'm not sure what she's really talking about, and I'm not gonna, not gonna read that book. Obviously, you can pull together lots of facts and make a polemic about how American white men are violent and that the culture is full of violence. You can cherry pick out whatever facts you want. Um, I haven't read the book, so I can't denounce it, but I'm just not interested in reading it. I don't have a sense that it's a, a serious work of uh, history. Oluo historicizes the creation of a violent and profane American white masculinity. It sounds like a polemic. Uh, there's a place for polemics. It's just, I don't have I don't have time for that. In any, any case, um, you could say that um, are, are white, have white men dragged us to the precipice and they're ready to take us over the precipice so that people who are not white men need to uh, stop this suicide mission? And uh, just to contrast that to the buffalo themselves, Buffalo Bill did kill a lot of buffaloes at one point. He was uh, he had a contract to supply uh, meat to the railroad workers. I read at Wikipedia. So he had to kill a lot of buffaloes. That was the meat. And the people building the railroads, uh, they needed to eat. And pe some people were in the business of providing the meat. Anyway, you could, say, you could write a book uh, historicizing the behavior of buffaloes because, you know, buffalo, following their own natural predilections, often... Uh, uh, go up to the precipice, and uh, you could say that that's uh, like, what's that quote that she said about suicide? Um, uh, white manhood is on a suicide mission. You could say buffaloes are on a suicide mission. And I found this pa paragraph at the, uh, I think it's the National Park Service, yeah, National Park Service website. Quote, 
when bison travel. They typically form a narrow line in a follow-the-leader type of fashion, particularly when untrammeled winter snows impose high energetic costs to bison venturing off packed trails. To add to the issue, bison can run up to 35 miles per hour. If these two aspects are combined, it would be extremely difficult for a large herd running at top speed to stop quickly before reaching imminent danger, for one would run right into the next. There is record that in 1867, a herd of 4,000 bison attempted to cross the Platte River in Nebraska and ran into loose quicksand near the river, one right after the other, because they were simply following the herd. We have to save them from their suicide mission. The Platte River in Nebraska, I wonder how close that was to North Platte, where um, where Buffalo Bill Cody's wife was feeding the men too much and complaining about his sweethearts. Speaking of show business, let's talk about the idea that Netflix and the tech companies are ruining the movie theater business. There's an article in The Nation by Jeet here. Movie theaters aren't dying. They're being murdered. The COVID-19 pandemic is providing a perfect cover for media giants bent on replacing theatrical moviegoing with streaming at home. Okay, that's the title from the body of the article. Quote, for over a century, film was at its core a theatrical art form. While it's true that movies could be watched on TV, the primary cinematic experience was immersive viewing in a theater surrounded by strangers. Now there is a push to make the movie theater merely one platform among others, offering an experience deemed no more meaningful than watching the same feature-length visual narratives on a home entertainment system, a laptop, or even a cell phone. As media giants like Netflix, Disney, and Warner Media try to downgrade the movie-going experience, it's important to articulate how essential immersive theatrical watching is. Okay, now why why is it? Why is it important in the view of the nation that we continue to have the immersive theatrical watching as opposed to being in our own home looking at our own television or maybe smaller screen? This says, quote, when we watch a movie at home or on an airplane or on a treadmill at the gym, the movie is a small part of the environment. Okay, so it's not as immersive, but so what? Why do we need to be immersed? Why is it important to be immersed? Quote, it's easy to be distracted from the movie by everything else all around us, even if we have a giant wall screen TV. When we watch a movie in the theater, the movie isn't part of the environment. It is the environment. Now, close quote, I would just say, really? What about all those people sitting around you? The, the audience, is the, is the audience part of the movie? The movie is immersive, but the people can be distracting. And a lot of the experience of being in the theater is that you're around other people. Uh, isn't, but, but it's immersive. You're immersed in that social activity of sitting near people. 
and hearing people breathing their air. Quote, we're enveloped in the movie and taken away from our humdrum existence, close quote. Well, now I'm just insulted. Our humdrum existence? Speak for yourself. I don't have a humdrum existence. Why are you? It's like saying deplorables. You're looking around and seeing people and just, and just assuming that their existence is humdrum. What the hell's on the screen that's not a humdrum? Oh, big epics and crazy stuff that can go on and superheroes and this and just giant heads. Uh, why is that good? Why is that important? Why is it important to be overwhelmed with these larger-than-life experiences such that it makes real life, human-scale life, dismissible as humdrum? I just think that has everything wrong. I don't think we should be overwhelmed by things bigger than us. I think we should have our point of reference in life, the human scale, the individual, what we ourselves are. It made me think of the famous ending of the movie Sunset Boulevard when uh, the main character, Norma Desmond, the delusional actress who's trying to make a comeback but is crazy, is uh, imagining that she's going to be back on the screen and she talks about uh, making a movie for the wonderful people out there in the dark. Uh, the, this, it's the, we're, we're the people out there in the dark if we're in the theater. We're not important. Uh, we're having ourselves uh, made important by the fact that we're immersed in this thing greater than ourselves. Some movie. It's not saying uh, uh, all of humanity is greater than ourselves, or our country is greater than ourselves, or God is greater than ourselves. It's just saying that some movie is, and that we ought to have that experience. We ought to be immersed in that. We ought to feel small. Why? The article continues, quote, but even as theatrical movie-going is more all-encompassing, it is also more social. At home, we watch a movie alone or with people we know. In a theater, we watch a movie with strangers who are as immersed in the narrative as we are. And I said, except when they're not, which ruins the effect. And then I started thinking, then we could get a, if we wanted an immersive experience, what about the kind of helmet-like device that gives a complete wraparound picture and a virtual effect, uh, 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 virtual reality kind of movie where you really feel that you're there. And, you know, if you wanted to, you could make a movie theater effect where it seems like you're in a crowd of people and that people are sitting around you and are reacting to the movie. So you could create that group experience within the virtual reality and then show a movie up in front, maybe show any movie up in front, but be able to select an audience that you're sitting with. And I thought this could be great. It could be that you're sitting with these beautifully dressed, beautiful people. You know, you can pick, you know, you can say, I want to sit next to Brad Pitt uh, or, or whatever stars you like. And they could even lean over and talk to you and say, very apt, witty things. It could be better than the movie, you know, maybe, and you could turn it on and off. Like if you're a little bored, you want someone to start making comments to you, or you could set it so that there are some hecklers in the audience who, uh, who say interesting things. And, uh, uh, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe the, uh, something, there's some, uh, emergency could happen in the theater or, or all, all sorts of things could happen. Anyway, if you want an immersive experience, what about that virtual reality helmet? Put that on. 
put that on and maybe you could have multiple people really watching it in different places you know the kind of covid protective situation that we've been developing so that you could have the feeling of being watching a movie with with other people with with your own friends with your own family in different places couldn't we have beautiful witty partners sitting on either side of us whispering perfectly apt comments and learning our sense of humor and our comfort with interruptions anyway back to the article when a comedian like Jim Carrey does a pratfall, the laughter in the crowd is infectious. When the romantic couple finally unites and kisses after endless complications, everyone watching can swoon in unison. And I said, yeah, that can be virtual with an audience calibrated to my humor preference and my level of sentimentality. Maybe I think the couple that finally kisses in a romantic comedy should be jeered at. Maybe they should be laughed at. And maybe there's something serious and deep about a Jim Carrey pratfall that the philosopher sitting next to me could uh, lecture me about. Maybe I want to listen to that. I might want a more sophisticated crowd is what I'm saying with a few really smart hecklers and interrupters. Make that more interesting. Why am I just uh, interested in some uh, routine movie that has Jim Carrey doing pratfalls and a romantic couple finally uniting and kissing? Why is that good for me? Sounds rather debased, frankly. Back to the article. The film critic Joanna Schneller observed that there's a collective emotional energy that floats above the people who are watching movies. And I said, yeah, this is the nation, so I'm not surprised to encounter enthusiasm for the collective mind floating over us. Quote, the streaming future that these media giants are creating is very much a future that is favorable to capitalism, a deeply privatized, fragmented world where everyone watches in their own individual cave and is incapable of forming a collective identity. It's the ideal autocracy as imagined by Plato with Mickey Mouse as the philosopher king. So this is obviously a reference to Plato's allegory of the cave, and I put up a little uh, cartoon uh, lecture that is only about five minutes long, I think, that uh, explains the allegory of the cave or refreshes your recollection of it. But I really don't think that the um, watching TV alone at home instead of watching it with a group of people in a theater is like being in Plato's cave. In, in Plato's cave, you're chained to the wall and you watch shadows that are cast on the wall in front of you, which is the only thing that you can see. And that's your reality. That's the world as you know it because you're chained to the wall. Uh, but if you could get out of the cave and go into the world, you would see all the things in the world and you would understand what was casting the shadow on the wall and that that wasn't real at all. So why would watching TV at home be like the cave and watching t a move, the same movie in a theater be like getting out of the cave? They're both watching the movie. They're both unreal watching a screen 
the difference between two, it, it, it's like a two different Plato's cave and where one has uh, better shadows or something like that. Or one you're chained to the wall alone and in another you have some other people chained there with you. I, I just don't think that really has anything to do with Plato's allegory of the cave and this hope for collective identity, um, collective identity, this floating emotional energy. That's all uh, very... Uh, attenuated in my opinion, but uh, geez, I can see feeling sad that movie theaters are going, but this idea that we're going to lose something that we need, which is the ability to form a collective identity, right? The, the author is concerned about a deeply privatized, fragmented world where everyone watches in their own individual cave and is incapable of forming a collective identity. Why is it important to form a collective identity? We have to have collective action. They want us to join the collective. Seems to me if uh, the movie theater uh, increases the likelihood of forming a collective identity, that it's better to stay home and watch the movie on TV because you're less likely to get sucked up into this floating energy that turns you into a collective mind. That doesn't sound like a good idea at all. Now, um, let's see, another post that went up about uh, Netflix was, uh, I was reading the New Yorker review of um, Mank, Mank, reviewed by Richard Bodie in the New Yorker, David Fincher's impassioned dive into Hollywood politics. And this has some similar information about the effect of Netflix. Quote, today it's Netflix and other major streaming services that play the role which studios did in the 1930s and 40s. So the movie Mank is about the making of Citizen Kane. Mank is Herman J. Mankiewicz, who wrote the screenplay for Citizen Kane, and the story's told in a way that's similar to Citizen Kane. So anyway, the structure of the movie business uh, in the 1930s and 40s is relevant to the story, the setting of this particular movie, but it's a Netflix movie, so you're watching it on Netflix. Um, the, uh, like the studios, streaming services control the spigot of viewing, and like the studios, the major services are vertically integrated, controlling both the means of production and the means of distribution. Netflix produced both Mank and is the place where the film will be seen. The company, in effect, owns a thousand screen multiplex present in every sus subscriber's home. If Fincher, the director, if Fincher in Mank looks so ruefully at the intersection of media power and political power, it's because in the age of streaming, the reign of behemoth studios and their monopoly has, in effect, returned. And I said, now that I've at long last subscribed to Netflix, I have to consider whether to watch these things that are only on Netflix. Before, I was saved a lot of trouble. Some of these shows feel like assignments. And before I was a subscriber, I was able to look on Comly and know that I'm not taking that course. I don't have to do that homework. And I did watch the first five minutes of Mank. Yes, this bed frame is way up in my face, and I know why, because it's something like what Orson Welles did in Citizen Kane. And, oh, yeah, it's Gary Oldman in the bed, and he's supposed to be such a great actor. And who are all these other characters bustling about the room? Who are they supposed to be? And why should I care? 
or just answer the second question first. And if you can't answer, you don't have to answer. It's like a bad dream where you can't do the work and then wake up and realize you don't have to do that work. It was never your work to begin with. So let's just watch another episode of The Crown, the show I subscribed to Netflix because I wanted to keep watching. But if Mank were in a movie theater, I'd only be watching the first five minutes because I got motivated to leave my house and buy a ticket just for that one thing. And now that I was in my seat and settled in for what I made a tangible commitment to, I'd do the work of paying attention and trying to get interested and figure out why everything is happening and why everything is important and meaningful. That You can always assume that in a movie. Why are these things happening? Don't worry. Everything that happens in a movie matters. It's not like, oh, nothing's going to happen. Why should I bother with this? That's TV. You switch to another channel. But in a movie, you go to the movies, you're going to keep sitting there. It's very, very rare to walk out. I can count on less than one hand the movies I've walked out on. I think the only movies I ever walked out on were Petulia in the late 60s and Summer of Sam, the Spike Lee movie about uh, the son of Sam. Started to watch that and realized, um, oh, I'm just waiting to see these people murdered. And I didn't, I didn't want to see them murdered. I realized I don't have to watch this. They don't have to be murdered in my head. They're going to be murdered in this movie but I can get my head out of there. Now, I don't know about you, but I love to do the puzzle in the New York Times called Spelling Bee. And I didn't reveal that this was why I was interested in a particular word today. But um, in Spelling Bee, there is a group of six letters and then one letter in the middle so a total of seven letters, and you have to spell as many words as you can, words at least four letters long, that use the letters you have, and you can repeat letters, but you always have to use the letter in the middle. Letter in the middle today was P. And uh, one thing you try to do is get as many words as possible, especially longer words score more, and at a certain point, you hit a score that uh, causes the the machine to tell you you've reached genius level. So that seems to be the goal. But another goal is to get a word that is a pangram, a word that uses all the letters. And an unusual thing happened to me today, which is that I got to the genius level and I still hadn't gotten the pangram. So I had to keep going. I couldn't just say, okay, did that. Uh, I needed to know what the pangram was. So I tried a word that I didn't think was much of a word one thing when you play this game, you don't lose any points for guessing wrong. Uh, so you sometimes you try just like weird combinations that seem like it might be a word. Like I tried P-head, not P-E-E-head, but P-E-A-head. They didn't accept P-head. P-brain, would that, that would probably work. Obviously, it didn't have the letters for P-brain, but I thought maybe P-head was a word. Um, rejected that, but I tried headpiece. Headpiece. Is headpiece a word? Well, it turns out headpiece is a word, but uh, I didn't think it was much of a word. I thought that was too obscure to build a puzzle around uh, the pangram headpiece. So I wanted to write about it. I wanted to look up the word and find out uh, what is head headpiece? What does it refer to? Does it refer to just something you wear on your head? It has a whole bunch of meanings. I looked it up, but first to Googling it. 
I found almost everything was about just some junk a bride would wear on her head. I guess some brides don't want to wear a veil and they wear something that's more like a tiara, but it isn't a tiara. It might be some sort of thing that looks a little floral in shape that's got rhinestones and it's wired together and just part of your worked into your 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 hairdo uh, maybe something between a headband and a headdress that somehow isn't really a tiara anyway I thought it was kind of an obscure word I'm trying to think of uh, what it meant headpiece it also made me think of uh, the words head case and think piece head case and think piece so one of the definitions, uh, I thought this was interesting. So I was reading all the many, there were at least eight definitions in the OED of what headpiece could mean, and I was reading them, and one of them I, I particularly liked and I wanted to present on the blog because I thought uh, that this is kind of a cool usage. We ought, to, we ought to do this. We ought to use this. I mean, I don't really care about what the bride is wearing on her head. I, I like this idea that the word headpiece, one of the meanings is the head or brain considered as the seat of mental activity, intellect, brains, sense. And it's in the 1740 novel, Pamela. You have an excellent headpiece for your years. So you see, you use it like brain. You have an excellent head, headpiece. <laughs> it reminds me of that book cover for Mediocre, the, the balloon head. Now we're talking about a head. Uh, you, you have an excellent head on your shoulders, we might say. But, but back in 1740 in Pamela, uh, Richardson wrote, uh, you have an excellent headpiece for your years. And then this was from a book called Jazz, a 2003 book called Jazz. And this is some dialogue from the book. I, I tried to find the book, but I couldn't find it. Couldn't find it on Amazon. Anyway, she has brains, I swear, nearly as big as my own. Some headpiece that must be. I wonder what you two great minds choose to talk about. So that's obviously sarcastic. Some headpiece that must be. She has brains, I swear, nearly as big as my own. Some headpiece that must be. I wonder what you two great minds choose to talk about. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha, I said. I like it. I'm going to try to remember to use headpiece like that. You can also use headpiece to mean a clever or intellectual person. For example, of all the headpieces that were there, he was thought to give the strongest reasons. A little bit like genius. Hey, genius. Hey, headpiece. <laughs> By the way, head case is in the OED. Definition, a person whose behavior is violent and unpredictable or markedly eccentric, often hyperbolically. Such a person characterized as mentally ill or unstable. So it's often used hyperbolically to mean a person characterized as mentally ill or unstable. So to call someone a headpiece is not necessarily to say they're psychotic or crazy. It, it can be used uh, for someone who's violent and unpredictable or markedly eccentric. And then in a sort of uh, funny way, an exaggerated way, you can use it to say that they're mentally ill or unstable. The first use of headcase was in a movie that I don't remember ever hearing about, but uh, Flight of the Phoenix, 1965. They ain't gonna let no head case run a drilling operation. And it has a hilarious trailer. It's about some uh, men, they're all men, white men, speaking of white men, uh, and they're in some plane that has gone down in, looks like the Sahara Desert. So they have a problem. 
they have a problem. And it, the trailer keeps emphasizing that it's this star and that star. You know, it's Jimmy Stewart and Peter Finch and Ernest Borgnine and I don't know who all else. Uh, but uh, um, they, they're all yelling at each other. Like the, uh, things are always uh, getting on each other's nerves and somebody's threatening to quit and you have to do this. And uh, it's just all yelling. It's, it's really what they used to do with actors, a cast of... Uh, you know, all these big stars. Uh, Jimmy Stewart's pretty old by 1965, but uh, he's sure able to uh, chew out his uh, fellow uh, mediocre men, white men. Now, uh, if it were one year later, Pete Townsend would have had uh, credit for being the first use of head case because it's in the song, I'm a boy. My name is Bill and I'm a head case. They practice making up on my face. Yeah, I feel lucky if I get trousers to wear, spend evenings taking hairpins from my hair. I'm a boy, I'm a boy, but my ma won't admit it. So this is about a boy who is uh, dressed up like, a, has a lot of sisters, and basically the mother is just uh, dressing up the boy like a girl for whatever reason. Uh, do people do that? Do people, uh, I feel like I heard stories about that in the past that uh, maybe, uh, a parent wanted the opposite sex child and then just um, starts dressing the child that way. This isn't a child deciding he or she is uh, transgender, but a parent uh, deciding that the child should be the other sex and trying to impose that on the child. Does that happen? I don't know. I don't know, but uh, Pete Townsend uh, had a pretty vivid uh, story about, uh, about that. And he's insisting I'm a boy. Um, you know, it's possible that the song could be reinterpreted as a, a transgender song so that the person who's singing I'm a boy was assigned female at birth, has the body parts of a female, but insists I'm a boy. And uh, that, uh, that the dressing and the hair fixing and the makeup that goes with girl is not something that this character wants and insists I'm a boy. I never thought about that until just now. So that's an addition from what was in the original blog post. It, the song on its own terms seems to be about a, uh, a boy who was born an assigned boy based on anatomical body parts and somehow has a mother and sisters who dress him up and make him up and fix his hair in the style of a girl, and he doesn't like it. My mom won't admit it. As for think piece, that's in the OED too. It's mostly a journalism term. An article, quote, this is the definition in the OED, an article containing discussion, analysis, or opinion as opposed to fact or news. Think piece was first seen in Harper's Magazine in 1935. Quote, we reporters wanted to work, but there was nothing with which to build. So we faked and wrote think pieces and sat about glass in hand until something happened to break the monotony. So that was the old days of 1935 fake news. We didn't have any facts to report, so we would just write think pieces. Basically, we had nothing new to say, no, no news to break, no facts to report. So we just made think pieces. 
And I said, imagine a headpiece. And as I say this sentence, headpiece means uh, a smart person, you know, or like calling someone genius. Hey, headpiece. Hey, genius. That kind of headpiece. Imagine a headpiece writing a think piece about a headcase. Oh, I just thought of just about every article I've ever read about Donald Trump. Okay, now I have one more piece to tell you about, and that is to call attention to the newly begun season of the year, the darkest month of the year, what I like to call dark month. So I put the solstice, which is December 21st, I put the solstice not as beginning a season, but as being in the middle of the month, because if I count out 15 days from either side of the solstice, I have the 30 or 31 darkest days of the year. So I like to think, we're get, sometimes the dark bothers me. It gets dark so early and the dawn is so late that I feel a little um, bothered by it. And one way to kind of get control of that feeling and to feel comfortable with it for me is to not think, oh, winter hasn't even begun. It's weeks away. But to think we're getting through the four weeks of the year that are the darkest, and the solstice is right in the middle of that. So we begin on on, January, uh, on December 6th. And I had put up a open thread on uh, December 5th talking about um, the uh, showing the sunrise, and somebody said in the comments, Altask, oh, I'm photographing the sunrise across Lake Mendota with the state capitol right in the middle. And um, if you look closely, the capitol is only a small bit right in the middle of the photograph. But if you look right in the middle of that, you can see a dot of sunlight coming straight through the building so that opposing windows on either side of the building are allowing the light to come straight through. And then from the other side of the lake, I can look and see the, what looks like a f blazing fire inside the Capitol. So it's just a tiny dot in, a, in the photograph. And I didn't call attention to it, but one of the commenters did notice. Uh, Inga Chuck's toothless ARM, kind of a hard to remember or say uh, name, but that is the name. This person commented, Altas captures the exact moment the light pierces the center of the dome, the sign ushering in the season of Brumelia. And um, I had to look up Brumelia. Brumelia is um, Latin for winter festivals. And Brumelia was an ancient Roman winter solstice festival honoring Saturn and Ceres. And Bacchus, in some cases, by the um, Byzantine era, celebrations were commenced on the 24th of November and lasted for a month until Saturnalia and the waxing of the light. So the light starts to come back after a month. So you go from the 24th of November to 24th of December, and then you start calling it Saturnalia you switch from winter festivals to waxing of the light because, uh, as I'm saying, the, um, well, beginning on the day of the solstice, there's more light every day. You know, you're still within the darkest 30-day period of the year, but each day gets lighter. So the waxing of the light is Saturnalia. 
But Brumalia included Brumalia winter festivals, right, beginning November 24th. The festivals included nighttime feasting, drinking, and merriment. The short, cold days of winter would halt most forms of work. Brumalia was a festival celebrated during this dark interludal period. It was... No, I can't say this word. I just checked. There are two ways to say this word. It was chthonic in character, or it was thonic in character. It's spelled C-H-T-H-O-N-I-C. It was chthonic. It was thonic in character and associated with crops. Farmers would sacrifice pigs to Saturn and Ceres. Vine growers would sacrifice goats in honor of Bacchus. And I said, my word for this time of year is dark month. And I, I just explained that to you, how I count back uh, to, uh, 15 days to get to the 6th. And it's interesting to me because we know when the dark is going to come. We know when the darkest days are. That's predictable. And we can say this is the 30-day period that's the darkest. We also have to think about the cold coming. And uh, obviously, the coldest part of the year is unlikely to be beginning on the 6th of December. And it's really unlikely to be 30 days in a row anyway. So it's kind of a, it's a little bit predictable generally, but you can't pinpoint it. So you can't say, well, we're through the cold. It's going to get warmer from now on. Uh, the coldest days could be in March, but they could easily be in February. They're most likely to be in January, but not 30 consecutive days. Often I've noticed around here, December is the coldest part of the year. And then there's also the problem that um, the early cold part of the year can feel colder because you're not acclimated yet. And also because you worry, oh, oh it's so cold now, how am I going to deal with all the rest of the cold? So cold is a different kind of a problem. And there's no equivalent of dark month that can help deal with the worries and anxieties and uh, burdens you might feel at the approach of the cold. But I think if you separate, it might help just to separate the cold and the dark. The dark, to me, is the most troubling part of the winter. But what's wrong with dark? Why isn't dark good? Think of dark in its, in its goodness. You, you, can, uh, you can sleep well in the dark, and you can uh, party. You can have warm lights like candles. Don't have a thousand candles in your house, but uh, you know you can watch television. You can have your nice uh, home theater. Uh, it, it's better watching when it's dark outside. There are a lot of things you can do in the dark, and uh, cold is a different matter. So separate the cold and the dark. Find a way to deal with the dark, and uh, cold you'll have to figure that out in some other way. But you can do it. Have some uh, cold sports that you like. And uh, get some good clothing. Get the right clothing. And uh, find times, keep track of which days are cold and which days aren't so cold. And, uh, and get out. Get out when you can. And I recommend doing a little skiing and ice skating. I can see that uh, Saturnalia is a more optimistic idea than Dark Month because you're not saying only two more weeks of the darkest month, but this is the waxing of the light. Each day is a bit more light, even as the coldest days are to come. And I link to the first month where I 
the first um, post where I talked about Dark Month, I had developed this idea before I started blogging because I talked about it in my um, in, in a post uh, in December of 2004. Uh, we're deeply embedded in a time of year I like to think of as Dark Month. Tomorrow's the winter solstice, I wrote on December 20th, 2004. Uh, tomorrow uh, is the winter solstice, the midpoint of dark month, the darkest 30 days of the year. After tomorrow, there is at least the knowledge that each day has a little more light than the day before. Here in the North Country, the darkest days are so dismally short. I've gotten used to the cold over the years, but never to the extreme dark. And I wrote that in 2004. I, I do feel much more adapted to the extreme dark than I used to. One way I've adapted, and, and really it's uh, more than 15 years since I wrote that, one way I've adapted is that I just go to bed early. So when it starts to get dark at four in the afternoon, it's, you know, it's not that far from when I'll go to bed. It's not like I'm going to stay up until midnight or even 11 or frankly, even 10, I might uh, feel ready to go to bed um, at 8 and often be asleep by 9. So then I get up early, and then I have the dark in the morning. But I enjoy the dark in the morning because I like to get up and have some coffee, get some toast, and sit down to the blog and write on the blog. And I find it pretty, pretty exciting to sit down and blog when it's still dark out and I'm up really early, I don't mind that it's dark. I actually sort of like it. And since I do have this routine, this ritual of going out and running uh, at dawn, it's sort of helpful to my writing that dawn is later. I have some solid hours, often two hours or more, to write before I have to get my running shoes on and go out and, uh, and meet the sunrise. So th there's some benefits to the late to the late sunrise that I like, but, but adjusting my sleep pattern so that it's more squared in the darkness and so that um, I don't have a really long evening of dark because I go to bed early. I have some of that dark in my uh, earliest hours, my first morning hours, and that fits well with my writing. So that's one way I deal with the darkness. And I said, back in 2004, I wrote, at 2.30 in the afternoon, you already feel the darkness setting in. Now, the sunset isn't until 4.30, but you do feel the darkness setting in at 2.30 in the afternoon, I said. These days have so little sense of their own existence, it's hard to take them seriously, I wrote at the time. That was in 2004, and then I thought it was very funny that uh, my husband, Mead, uh, showed up in uh, on uh, September 13th, of 2009, that was the first year that I, that we met, 09, and he said, uh, 2.30 in the afternoon, ah, now you tell me, and it's funny because um, I didn't see that, I didn't see that until, I don't think, I don't think I saw that until January 11th of uh, 2017, so I think it took me eight years to notice that he wrote 2.30 in the afternoon, now you tell me. So I said, thanks for bringing the light and the warmth to get me through the last eight dark months, dear Mead. How heartening it would have been on December 20th, 2004, to have known that five years later you would be coming 
And he said, the pleasure has been mine, my, mine, my dear friend. Has it really been eight dark months? Time does indeed fly, even as the planet tilts. So I, th I thought that was pretty, pretty darn lovely. And I said, uh, here's the first post where I talked about dark month. I like that Mead shows up and makes the first comment in 2009, the year we met. By the way, it was Mead who first saw the dot of sunrise light burning up inside the Capitol and made me see it too. And that felt like a song cue to me, uh, beginning to see the light. And when I hear that song title, beginning to see the light, I think of the Velvet Underground song. Some people work very hard, but still they never get it right. I'm beginning to see the light. Now, you might think uh, of a different song. There's actually a, a much uh, grander, fancier song um, sung by Ella Fitzgerald singing with the Count Basie uh, band. Uh, I'm beginning to see the light. The exact same, exact same title, different words, completely different song. I never cared much for moonlit skies. I never wink back at fireflies. But now that the stars are in your eyes, I'm beginning to see the light. What, what, uh, what fantastic uh, lyrics these are. I'm big, I never went in for afterglow or candlelight on the mistletoe. But now when you turn the lamp down low, I'm beginning to see the light. Used to ramble through the park, shadow boxing in the dark. Then you came and caused a spark. That's a four alarm fire now. And speaking of serendipity, things that just go together, you caused a spark, a four-alarm fire. We were just talking about the poor um, ex-CEO of Zappos, Tony Shea, who died in a fire. We were talking about the fire and the sort of uh, delusion that might, might develop in a person, perhaps a, a rich person who isn't stopped, and uh, shadow boxing in the dark. Shadow boxing in the dark, it's a little reminiscent of the Plato's cave story. So I, I like when these things uh, fit together. I never made love by lantern shine. I never saw rainbows in my wine. But now that your lips are burning mine, I'm beginning to see the light. 